Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and The Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Kanjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. Welcome to this episode of The Grower and The Economist. This week, Peter and I are joined by guest expert Jeffrey Dorfman, professor of agriculture and applied economics at the University of Georgia. I stumbled upon Jeffrey's work and he wrote some papers on marketing and he's done some work on CSAs and regional assets and all of the things that we like to talk about working with our small and medium-sized growers. So I'm excited about this conversation today. I'd like to give Jeffrey the opportunity to introduce himself and tell us how his career went and how he got here. I started as a professor at University of Georgia about 33 years ago. They hired me because I was good at statistics and quantitative stuff. So they wanted me to work with other professors, helping do empirical research. And I also had done work in grad school on tree crops. So sort of almond and olive trees in California were the parts of agriculture I knew the most about. Once I got to Georgia though, you know, we, we, we have pecans, we have peaches, but we also have a lot of other things that are that are big and important, peanuts and cotton and chickens and specialty crops. And so over the years, there were times where I worked with the Georgia Fruit and Vegetable Growers Association on various problems they had and got more familiar with some of those things. Part of what I do at the university is I've been loaned out to state government as a state economist. And when the pandemic started, we had a lot of specialty crop growers, a lot of people with vegetables in the ground that were about to be harvested and suddenly no place to sell them. Because it turns out that most of the vegetables eaten in this country are eaten when we go to either a school cafeteria or a restaurant. When we're cooking for ourselves at home, we don't eat nearly as many vegetables. Or at least we don't put as many on our plate. Maybe we eat the same amount, but we don't put them on our plate. And so I worked with our commissioner of agriculture to try and figure out what we could do about this. And I think that brought us here today. Well, I have to just stop for a second and be, I don't know, amazed, shocked, something that just so much of that production or so much of that consumption comes from school, cafeteria and restaurants. I think what we don't realize is both that we're less likely to put vegetables on our plate when we cook at home and also that when we do use vegetables in our home cooking, it's a very small subset of all the vegetables, right? So, so I know how to cook with carrots and broccoli and cauliflower and bell peppers and maybe some squashes, but you know, who among us has cooked with ramps at home, right? Or lots of fancy leafy greens. You know, we're much more likely to eat kale if we're out than if we're at home. So I think, there were a whole lot of people that had a whole lot of crops in the ground that essentially the only buyers for are restaurants. I sense a trend where there's a little more effort being made to reduce carbohydrate intake uh, and the correlation between carbs and sugar or refined sugars and obesity. Uh, A year ago, I personally went through a change in lifestyle and today I'm eating 
hardly any carbs compared to two years ago. And the refined sugars have all been reduced in my diet. And by removing carbs, you're essentially increasing the percentage of your vegetables and and proteins and whatnot. So, Jeffrey, are you seeing any light on the horizon where perhaps our basic diets might be changing that would then work their way into promoting and uh, making fresh vegetable consumption uh, more enticing? I, I agree there definitely are some people that have done similar things to what you have done. We have keto diets and we have lots of other things where people are reducing carbs. But if there was a big movement away from carbs and toward eating more fruits and vegetables, then I don't think we would have seen all the pandemic weight gain that we hear about. And I'm pretty sure we didn't gain that weight by snacking on carrot sticks and, and celery while we were working from home, right? We had to go get some carbs out of the yeah. pantry. As you watch the pandemic unfold and you talked with these different producers, what changes really came to light? What are some of the interesting findings you had? So, so one thing that's interesting that isn't, I mean, I knew, but I think a lot of people didn't know, and I think we sort of managed to communicate that message better, is that there are almost two completely separate food supply chains in this country. There's an institutional food supply chain where we prepare foods that get sold to restaurants and food service institutions like cafeterias and, and college dining halls for dorms. And then there's a second food supply chain where we prepare food that goes to the supermarket and on to our houses for us to prepare food at home. And they're different. Restaurants don't buy canned vegetables in 15 ounce cans, and they don't buy frozen vegetables in little 16 ounce bags. And lots of uh, companies are making meats and produce in different plants for those two supply chains. So when restaurants and food service shut down, it was much more difficult than most people expected to reorient that supply chain and move that production to the supermarket so people could buy it and eat it. And then I, I will admit that while I knew about that, I had not realized how bad we were at eating vegetables at home. Well, and the idea of the chefs put them on the plate, it goes a lot into the psychology of supermarkets. The vegetable or produce section is first because you pick up a few and then you feel good about the rest of your purchases as you, you know, go through the store. You've already, you know, bought some of this produce, so you feel good. And so I wonder if the chefs are feeding on that same thing. Like, I feel good that I got ramps in my salad. And so, of course, I'll have, you know, a large dinner or dessert with it or cocktail. You know, I hadn't thought about that, but that, that is an interesting point. There is a lot of psychology to restaurant menu design. The two different supply chains, I agree that, I mean, we've talked about it a few times and I've actually used the toilet paper example as the same thing. It's not that we didn't have toilet paper, it's that we had you know, for offices and stadiums, and we didn't need those, we needed for at home. Do you think that, that there will be more flexibility built in? I mean, in some of these manufacturings, do you think that there's a way to adjust them so that they can switch back and forth more easily or not? 
food factories, so food processing plants, are surprisingly custom built. Like, I don't think a lot of people realize that, but there is no place you can go to and order an ice cream factory, right? Or even a, a sort of, you know, assembly line or processing kit for ice cream. You have to buy the components. People make the components and the components aren't even all the same capacity. So most food processing plants have this machine that can handle 5,000 pounds an hour next to another machine that can do 6,000 pounds an hour. And then the next one does 4,500. They're all sort of engineered specifically for that application. So now it's going to be up to the engineers, I think, to invent and build in a little more flexibility so that it's easier to change a line from filling the five pound jars that we sell to restaurants uh, into the 15 ounce jars that go to the supermarket and the five gallon tubs of ice cream that we sell to restaurants, which is a beautiful thing. Those, you know, they, I think if they could have gotten them to consumers, we would have bought them, right? <laughs> but, but they sell restaurants ice creams in five gallon tubs, like the giant pails of paint you get at, you know, the home improvement store to the, the pints and the quarts and the half gallons that we buy in a supermarket. There's is really just one machine that would need changing, just the final step in the line. So we may see some companies buying sort of a backup machine that in a day they could swap out and, and change a line from institutional to consumer or consumer to institutional. My guess is that wouldn't be too expensive. I think for produce and a lot of things using them, that's possible. For some things like meats, uh, it's a little different because then it's literally a different stage of processing, right? The chefs don't want the meats processed this far. Peter and I actually started the discussion about this podcast on there are open shelves, or there are empty shelves and people are scared to go to the grocery store. And is this an opportunity for, you know, other growers? Can they either get into the grocery store or are there other ways to get to consumers? So the picture I think that you just framed was, you know, we have this institutional preparation and it existed and we didn't have enough of the at home preparation available. And so did you see consumers looking for ways to get produce? Did, did your research dive into ways that they, the items that they did want to purchase at home, were they able to find other places to get it? Yeah, so 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 we did manage to do that. So the way in Georgia we connected people is working with the Department of Agriculture and then eventually with USDA, which provided funding for food box distribution programs. We arranged contracts and bought large amounts of produce and dairy products and meat products, you know, chicken, things like that and packed them into boxes and had both food giveaways and food box sales. And so people could go in parts of Georgia online and sort of prepay for boxes and then come to a distribution day you know, where the cars would snake through a parking lot. And we check them against the list, see that yes, they bought one box or two boxes, you know, the just straight produce box or a mixed produce and protein box and we'd pop it in the trunk it was great. There was, you know, no real face-to-face -face contact. The person just put the food right in the trunk of the car. Off the people went. We created a market for the farmers 
We got food to customers who wanted it and uh, everybody won. I've been in conversations recently that there are that public private partnerships need to adjust and that that maybe that there are new places for both private industry and the government. And where I'm going with this is in agriculture, I think that the loans that USDA gives or the grants, especially as they want to increase processing and manufacturing right now are helpful. But I think that a way that this public-private partnership could really work is to have the government as a purchaser of a certain amount of food that would, you know, guarantee farmers are going to be able to sell a certain amount. You're going to have enough pass-through processing or distribution, and you have this end user, which in my mind is your non-restaurant institutions, your universities, your public schools, your hospitals, your prisons. And it sounds like on some level that was part of your program. In the early stages of the pandemic, that we did something very similar to that and it made sense, right? That no private company wanted to take the risk of spending millions of dollars buying broccoli, squash, bell peppers, and chicken to see if customers would line up by the thousands to pay $20 to buy boxes of that stuff, right? Because it had never been done before. So there's no data. Nobody has any idea if it's going to work. That was a perfect place for government to say, essentially, we will be the insurance. We'll buy the stuff and we'll see how it goes. Uh, In the longer run, though, I'm less sure if that's good all the time because USDA has over the last several years proposed things like replacing part of SNAP, the food stamps program where we help poor people buy food with food boxes. And people resisted very strongly thinking that, you know, we don't want USDA deciding what food we get. We want to get the SNAP benefits and go to the store like everybody else and buy the food that we want to buy. And so I think In normal times, people may not want to give up that control and have the government sort of picking what they're eating. But I think we need to retain the capacity to ramp programs like that up at times of large scale disruption. And whether that's to the whether that's to the food supply chain like there was during the pandemic or whether it's just to food security and consumer purchasing power. Right. So so we didn't sell all the boxes. We also had giveaways where people could just drive up and get boxes for free. And at a time where demanded food banks had tripled or quadrupled, it was also important that we were just giving food away and and filling that need. And we did that, you know, in partnership with food banks and with local governments. So I think there's a role for that. But I think I think the other thing to look at for public private partnerships are logistical and capital resources. So one of the things I think we should learn from the pandemic is the value of food hubs. And in particular, even just a standby food hub. So a food hub is traditionally sort of a a food processing or retailing location that is generally shared. So a bunch of producers who don't have enough to really have their own farmer's market or their own direct-to-consumer sales or even their own packing shed or or sort of commercial kitchen where they can do things, share some type of processing or marketing facility, 
right? And that's what people needed in the pandemic, right? Was how are we going to get this produce to consumers? Well, governments could buy warehouses with some minimal equipment that might stand shuttered some of the time, but can be opened when we have extra production from farms that need selling. Or the government can pay some of the costs of these things, and then farmers maybe can rent the time they need in them. And rather than having to form a co-op, the government can be that sort of intermediary and coordinator of these things. In recent episodes, Jeff, we've, we've had a couple of experts on CEA production. And uh, in, in one conversation, we were discussing how capital intense uh, some of the extreme CEA, the vertical farming is. And one of the things we talked about was, gee, if we look into the future, could we see a day where a municipality or the government, the public sector sponsors or shares the cost of renovating an urban uh, idle factory and installs the equipment and systems. And then our local farmers could then rent a floor for his or her production. And and uh, we talked, we drilled down to perhaps some ethnic foods that would be tailored to the community or the urban center. So when I hear the two of you talking about the marketing side of it, I'm encouraged that we've also been thinking about these ideas on the production side of things. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I think you could see that. I could actually imagine, for example, the city of Atlanta being interested in that. It has um, a pretty strong urban ag scene with big annual conferences and get-togethers and a lot of community gardens. So I could actually see a city like Atlanta putting some money behind that. I could see a city like Chicago maybe putting some money behind that. And I think if you built something like that, I would love to see it paired with both a small sort of farmer's market or retail component where I don't even have to, I rent my space, but then I don't have to take my produce somewhere. I can sell it right there. Mm -hmm. Or um, one of the other really great things that's going on are the mobile food trucks, right? That instead of you know being a taco truck, it's a produce truck. And to, to improve food access in some inner city neighborhoods, people are buying produce, converting, you know, sort of small school bus type vehicles into a produce market. And they drive it into neighborhoods, park, open the doors, and people come in and buy fresh produce. Well, and I've seen research, I think it was out of North Carolina that that it is an access problem. You know, we talked about people eating less vegetables at home and then the scope being even smaller, but how much of it is preference or knowing how to cook and how much is it access? And so this research from North Carolina suggested that with access to produce consumption increased by 30%. It got me thinking if I lived, you know, in Atlanta or outside and had to take a bus or two to a grocery store, would I really buy strawberries? Would they really make it home? And so that that part of the conversation I also find really fascinating and creative. And I've worked with a food um, pantry up here that is also looking at having mobile options. Can they park in a parking lot in different places? And will that increase access to food instead of just having one central location? So. I think it's really fun that people are trying to play with these ideas and be creative and look for different solutions other than the ones that we typically have in this food access world. 
Yeah, so so one of the things, I actually have a grad student uh, working on some of these issues right now, and his dissertation is going to focus on the role of trust in food access and, and food consumption. Um, and so one of the things that some of these mobile produce trucks do is they build up a lot of trust because the idea is, you know, you're going to park on the same corner every Monday morning. And, you know, on Wednesday afternoons, you're going to be in that other neighborhood. And people over time realize that you're always there and there's a schedule and they can get those same things. And so you get a lot of regular, consistent customers. And I think, you know, one of the things we have to do is consider that time component and the trust component that it takes a while to build, build that up and get people interested and trying the new things consistently. But the other thing we have to remember is just money. Like on the whole, I, I come down on the side of the debate that I think food access is less important than a lot of people think. And that what's more important is, is money to buy the food and time to prepare the food. There's a, a book I just finished reading, How the Other Half Eats by Priya Fielding Singh, and she's a sociologist. And she found that, you know, we, uh, the reason that a lot of poor families didn't eat healthier was a combination of both money, time, and what, what I found interesting was interaction with kids. If you're, if you're a parent without a lot of money, and you spend a lot of your life telling your kids, no, you can't have that. Then letting them get a bag of Doritos at the grocery store is something you can say yes to. And so, so unhealthy foods was something that a lot of poor mothers who wanted their kids to eat healthier bought their kids or let them eat simply because it was one of the few things they could afford to say yes when asked. So if, if they had the money to buy them the top they wanted at the mall the other day, then maybe they'd say, no, you can't have Doritos. We're having broccoli for dinner. That's really powerful. And I wanted to leave that punctuated pause for a second because it just is. I mean, the time and the money is clear, but I've seen that similar argument to the wanting to say yes in those debates about when people buy lobster with their food stamps. Like if you have SNAP benefits and they are limited and they're not enough to cover you for the whole month, like maybe you do want that one decadent meal and that psychology of it is real. And and hard, I think, for the rest of us to understand and policymakers to understand, to, to address. And I want to weigh in on that a little bit, too, because I've done a bunch of research on SNAP and other people have done tons of research on SNAP purchases. And we have some really good data that we've collected in the last few years on this. And we hear that SNAP people buy unhealthy stuff. And we once in a while hear about these people that buy lobster or steak with their SNAP benefits. And, and and I'm sure those are true stories. They got reported, somebody saw it or got the data. It's true, people buy unhealthy food with their SNAP benefits. You know what else is true? We buy unhealthy food with our dollars, all of us, like the middle-class people, the upper middle-class people, the rich people. If you're an American, you're probably buying a lot of unhealthy food. Peter apparently is not anymore, but the rest of us are. So 
we've compared the purchases of SNAP recipients to non-SNAP recipients. And the differences between what they buy are trivially small. Yes, they buy lots of soft drinks with SNAP benefits. That's because all Americans buy lots of soft drinks. People on SNAP are not using those dollars particularly any differently than people use their own dollars to buy food. The, the reason we see them buying unhealthy things is because all of us buy unhealthy things. I've spent some time recently doing some work for FDA and had to look through on baby food and had to look through WIC, so Women, Infant, and Children program, which does have a lot more restrictions. Yes. It is incredible. Like the restrictions and the spelling out is incredible to me on how detailed it is. And then talking with or interviewing low-income mothers mostly, right? When you do get to that food preparation, I don't think that most of them need that information. Like they are aware of how to make those dollars go farther. They are aware of the differences between brown rice. Like it's, I just, I think the contrast between the two programs is interesting on the predicted predictedness of WIC compared to SNAP and yeah, one of my great frustrations with the U.S. social safety net, you know, our welfare system, is how condescending it is. We, we give poor people WIC benefits or SNAP benefits or rent subsidies or help with the heating bill and all these specific programs because we apparently don't trust them to spend the money correctly. And that all kind of sounds good until what they actually need is $200 to fix their car so they can get to their job instead of getting fired. But because we only gave them benefits that can be used for specific things, they can't take their SNAP benefits and fix their car so they lose their job. And now they need more help instead of less because we were restrictive in how we gave them help. And the reality is, as you said, that being poor is very taxing mentally and poor people tend to become incredibly good decision makers because they have to navigate so many of these difficulties and they have to make so many decisions about what they're going to do with their limited resources right you have to be a much better decision maker when you can't afford to make mistakes if i buy the wrong thing at the supermarket my wife can just tell me i messed up and we can buy something else or we can find something in the freezer or the pantry to turn into dinner instead. When poor people make a mistake like that, that can mean going hungry. So um, I do wish we were not so condescending to poor people and realize that they're very good at making decisions and trust them and gave them some agency and essentially went to something closer to a universal basic income where we just give people money and trust them to do what they need to do the most. I'm thinking that perhaps our small farmers and growers at the local and regional level, perhaps we're uh, underemphasizing that institutional market a bit. And where in my garden center days, we would make sure that we were involved with either donating or participating in some of the school activities with bedding plants, how natural it would be for our farmers to be the ones selling the fruit and vegetables to our school programs. And, and so I, I, I think what you guys helped me see today is perhaps 
not everything has to go through directly to the consumer, but we can get to the consumer through their children? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And there are more school systems now that are working to include buy local components in their in their food programs where they are trying to buy local fruits and vegetables to use in the school cafeterias. And I also think direct to restaurants is an important uh, channel for small growers. I mean, if I were going to be a small produce farmer, and I've thought about this a lot because I think that's a good area of agriculture to be in, I would have a greenhouse or you know, hoop tunnel and be growing high quality vegetables for local restaurants. I think that is a great market to be in. And if I can also grow some for a CSA um, or a local farmer's market, then then great. But, but the restaurants are going to be consistent customers. And then if I've got, you know, a consumer base from a CSA or something or a farmer's market, then I have a backup channel for if something happens to those restaurants. What does it take for a small farmer to get to the restaurant? I mean, is that something that that they could manage in a delivery or do you need more steps in the middle? So I think it is something you can manage in a delivery. And I think you need you need two things. So the first thing is you need independent restaurants. Right. The chain restaurants are not going to buy your stuff. Uh, And your better customers is likely to be the fancier restaurants. So you need some city somewhere not that far away where there's where there's a restaurant that's charging enough that they're interested in paying you a good price for those produce, right? I always tell people, do you want to grow a head of lettuce to sell to a supermarket that's going to sell it for 50 cents or a restaurant that's going to take six leaves off that head of lettuce, put it on a plate and sell it for five bucks, mm-hmm. right? That restaurant can pay you a whole lot better. Um, so you need you need those higher end independent restaurants as customers. And then the second thing you need is some amount of variety. Right. They don't mind if what you're growing changes over time. Chefs love making new menus at that sort of restaurants, but they don't want to deal with somebody that's only going to sell them carrots. Right. That's that's too much time and effort out of their day unless your carrots are really, really good. Right. But if you can sell them five or six different things or 10 different things, then they're interested in talking to you. And if, you know, you can find three or four small local growers that can team up and you can say, hey, between us, we can sell you 20 different things and we'll combine our deliveries. So you only have to receive a delivery, you know, a group delivery from the four or five of us. Now I think you got a lot of restaurants that are paying attention and talking to you, right? Because I, I really believe that organic is already on the downhill slide. I don't think that is going to have lasting power. Local is going to be a much better food characteristic, right? I think we used organic as a proxy for local. Because right? organic used to generally mean local. But now organic is often a giant corporate farm in Oregon. And I think as people realize that their organic is now coming from the giant corporate farm 
and that some of the things that their local farmers markets or CSAs are non-organic, but are local. It's the local farmer that people always wanted to support. That's the important value to most American consumers. So I think we're going to see a shift from demand for organic to demand for local food. I keep asking the question, why? Why is the slice of the total agricultural production, why is the slice of that pie so small in terms of what the potential is for locally grown uh, versus the industrial ag model? And we keep coming back to okay, today it's 3%, maybe we can double or triple it or get to 10%. And, and I keep leaving those conversations with my head down, quite depressed about it. But hearing someone like you and, and blending your thoughts with what Michelle keeps sharing with me, I'm becoming more encouraged that the future might be brighter than how it looks today. Thank you for taking time and, and sharing your research results, and your insights with us. Sure. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Grower and the Economist. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate it wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us get discovered by new listeners. If you have questions, concerns, or would like to suggest a podcast topic, please email me at michelle at I love hearing from you. Until next time.